Let us pray. Gracious God, hear us as we pray for ears to hear your voice calling us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Regular worshipers here just might be asking an important question right now. Didn't we, they might be thinking, didn't we just hear Pastor Ian preach a wonderful sermon last week on this very story? The question has an interesting answer. Yes, Ian did preach about Jesus at the riverside just one week ago. How interesting it is that those who organize the revised common lectionary chose this week's gospel lesson to be from St. Matthew, to follow just, after, just a week after St. John's version of that story. Thank you, Theodore, for reading today's lesson. In last Sunday's account, you will remember that Jesus asks, what are you looking for? It is interesting to compare all four gospel stories about the words Jesus used to call his disciples. In Luke, for example, the story is quite a bit different. Jesus, walking along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, comes upon Andrew, <clears throat> Simon, James, and John, and then gets into one of their fishing boats. After pushing away from the shore just a little bit, Jesus sits down and teaches like any good rabbi. After finishing his lesson, his uh, <clears throat> adult faith formation class, if you will, he immediately jumped to ordination and installation of the four new disciples. Mark's account is like Matthew's. Jesus, actively seeking disciples, comes upon those same four. In the first and second gospels, though, he asks no questions. He just speaks. He is terse and unambiguous. He just says it. Follow me. I have a plan for you, he seems to be saying. In John, Jesus is perhaps a little more polite. He at least begins with a question. In Luke, he teaches first and then calls the future disciples. In Mark and Matthew, Jesus uses words bluntly. The four gospels don't include much more about Jesus' words. And we know even less about what questions the future disciples might have asked. All of us can easily imagine what we would ask. Things like, may I tell my family that I'm leaving? Could I, could I bring along a change of clothes? Jesus, could I have just a little more detail? Jesus, do I need to sign a release? Just what is the mission to which you are calling me? Now, this story is faithfully represented in one of our stained glass windows in the south aisle there. It's, 
copied on your bulletin cover today, but you might just go spend a minute before you leave the building to look at it. The question remains, just where are we called today? Individuals are called to serve, and the church is called to serve, and these calls change as new needs emerge. If Jesus were walking along our shoreline today, what words would he speak? Just what does he call us to do? You might agree that we are all called to serve in a culture which has become disconnected from our center. Voices on far extremes speak loudly, and we don't hear many others. Before we go on here, though, it will be important to understand what we mean by the word center. Words have enormous power. They can persuade, enrich, and even lead us into new ways of living. Words Words also have the power to hurt or to at least confuse. Here's a little story. I recently had to drop off one of these hearing aids for repair. It seemed certain that I'd have to do without it for a couple of weeks, and the thought was terrifying. Since, had, since the job had to be done, though, I created a little plan and, and left the device at the audiology office one Monday morning. Without it, my moping quickly got away from me. But then in just two hours, the phone rang. The news was unexpected and good. How, I asked the person who was at the desk, how did you take care of it so quickly? It was easy, she said. It wasn't the inner workings of the hearing aid. It was just a receiver failure. Cupping my ear to hear, I said, receiver failure? The lady behind me then quickly interjected, yeah, I also watched that Bronco game yesterday. <laughs> <clears throat> Yes, yes, lots of word confusions are innocent and intentionally or unintentionally funny. How about that word center? We really need to wrestle with it. A few here might be quite sure that the sports metaphor is going to continue now and move from the NFL to the NBA. But no, we will not be talking about Nikola Jokic our popular star center. Although, although it is tempting to dwell on his new record of career assists, Denver does indeed have a center who really assists. As we think about redefining and reclaiming our life's center, our culture's center, could I urge us to do some work? We need that center because our culture is in what many have called a civil war. We do admit that this war's Mason-Dixon line isn't on a map. It snakes its way instead down aisles in legislative chambers, into boardrooms, school board meetings, occasional church councils, 
and even families living in dining rooms. Arthur Brooks has written a book called Love Your Enemies. Its subtitle is How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. He provides us very helpful wisdom. Brooks points out that some Australian social scientists have given us a name for the cause of these wars. I don't know if you're really ready to hear this new designation, but here it is. They call it motive attribution asymmetry. (laughs) Motive attribution asymmetry, as they define it, is the phenomenon of, of assuming that your ideology is based on love while your opponent's ideology is based on hate. Rather than a complicated three-word phrase, Brooks suggests a single word, contempt. He has borrowed it from 19th century German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, who defined contempt as the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. A recent report from the Dignity Index founded by the Shriver family shows that our rhetoric approaches that of the warring parties in Northern Ireland at the height of the Troubles. We seem to need to take a good look at ourselves. It is tempting to misidentify contempt as a problem affecting only politicians, especially those whose political views differ from our own. Arthur Brooks tells stories, though, about his own personal discoveries about his contempt for others. And he encourages us to do that same introspection. The center, he points out, is not a simplistic pipe dream, not some spot where Goldilocks finally finds porridge warmed to precisely 99.2 degrees Fahrenheit, or or some other place where red and blue melt together in some homogeneous secondary color. No. The center includes many colors. As you leave the building today, after you look at our stained glass window, gaze at the mosaic in the commons. Mosaic contains all sorts of colors, and their combination is very illuminating. Thank you, Mary and Bob. The center is an important thing for us to wrestle with and grasp. The center is not those oversimplified metaphors. No, it is a place of animated energy where cool heads and fiery spirits all have much to contribute. St. Paul said it well, there are varieties of gifts, but it is the same Lord who is served. 
And yes, the four gospel writers have enriched our understanding with the variety in the stories about Jesus calling new disciples. Will this be easy? Brooks is a visionary, but he is realistic. He quotes the Dalai Lama. Warm-heartedness is not for the faint-hearted. And he quotes Jesus. Pray for your enemies. Here's another problem with the way we see our community. Sure, we might allow that the definitions of red and blue aren't too helpful, but we might instead assume that we can all find a single spot along that x-axis which will define us. There is trouble even with that assumption, though. If I were to try to describe myself, I might say that my parents expected me to think both cautiously and imaginatively, to live conservatively, and to love liberally. I will bet that many of us might have the same trouble defining ourselves by a single word or a single dot somewhere on a graph. We must embrace the rich complexity. These ambiguities are not new to our time in history, and neither is contempt. Contempt is an ancient scourge. We did not invent it in our time. Mr. Choir's first anthem included helpful age-old words from Psalm 85. In Psalm 85, we read these words, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Even though we do not know the precise historical context of three millennia ago, we do know that the poet assigned the singing of the psalm to the temple's lead singer. The psalm must have addressed a quarrel. One side might have been advocating for mercy, another for truth. One voice kept calling for righteousness, the other for keeping the peace. The psalm's text helps us remember not only that people of old disagreed. No, it goes beyond that. Those people also found their way to the center. Here is a contemporary story, which is much like the one in the psalm. Reverend Dr. Hunter Farrell, currently director of Pittsburgh Seminary's Global Mission Initiative, has told a story about a 2004 visit to a Presbyterian congregation in the highlands of central Peru. There had been 11 years of political violence among the people in the community. The two dominant competing political forces were represented by the established government and the shining path. The relationships in the community were shattered, perhaps like those in American culture today. Our friend Hunter and the local pastor David walked up the hill together to the New Jerusalem Presbyterian Church for evening worship. 
the congregation stood in their places around the perimeter of the sanctuary, the moment was awkward. At the room's center was a simple table with an open Bible and a candle in the middle. Pastor David began saying that people might have a right to hate, but, but he asked them to look with him for what God has to say. Sisters and brothers, he began, let us think about how to follow Jesus. Please take a step toward the Bible. After they all did, he invited them to take another step and then another. They soon found themselves standing shoulder to shoulder. Pastor David concluded, you can't take a step closer to Jesus Christ without getting closer to your neighbor. New epiphanies broke into the hearts of many who were there, and some embraced and wept. So how do we confront the current realities aspiring to redefine and embrace the center. Here are some thoughts. As we live in the current state of affairs, life is defined clearly and simply because enemies are defined simply and clearly. Life, when we are rooted in the center, is complicated. It's a tough job to reject contempt. According to the status quo, compromise means defeat. I had to compromise. As we live in the center, we understand compromise to be synonymous with victory. In our current way of doing things, first we come to a conclusion then we look for evidence to reinforce it. We look in the Constitution and the Bible and find words to prove ourselves right. When rooted in the center, we first identify a challenge. Then we ask around for thoughts, including the wisdom of some who see life differently. Then we work towards a conclusion. When debating, we inhale deeply so that we can talk more loudly and listen rarely. When we are rooted in the center, the place to where Jesus calls us, we inhale deeply and then we exhale. We listen well, even when the other is noisy. Nowadays, it's so common to make those attacks called ad hominem, the Latin word meaning at the other person. Embracing the center, we steer clear of attacks on persons. We freely criticize the debatable ideas and we contemplate our own anger. Nowadays, we tend to operate under the illusion that unity means only talking nice to the ones with whom we disagree but because we have to. Rooted in the center, we do the harder work. We embrace disagreement, reimagining the center, and then embracing it.
And last, we have a special definition of the word aisle. The aisle is that structure that divides good from evil. The aisle divides friends and enemies. In the center, we envision the aisle as the place where people make music together, where we share peace, where a few of us even dance on occasion, at least on the days when we're not feeling excessively Presbyterian. Let us pray. Gracious God, you walk along our shoreline, and we hear your voice saying, come, follow me. Oh, speak your words to heal us until we all are one. Amen.